Today in the garage, we have Alex Munoz and Pamela Machado. Alex is senior legal counsel with the Toronto District School Board, handling education law, human rights, and litigation files on behalf of the TDSB. Before joining the board, Alex was a partner in a boutique litigation firm, as well as a sole practitioner. Alex's legal practice over the years, prior to going in-house, mainly focused on criminal and regulatory matters, as well as civil litigation, primarily in the education law context. Alex has appeared as counsel in courts and administrative tribunals across Ontario, including the Divisional Court and the Court of Appeal. Alex is the editor of the Annotated Ontario Education Act and is involved in a community as a current board member of the Canadian Columbian Children's Organization and past president of the Canadian Hispanic Bar Association. He is perhaps most proud of his time spent as a coach of both his daughter and his son's soccer or football teams. Pamela completed her articles at a law firm in Cambridge, Ontario, specializing in areas of criminal law, civil litigation, and estate law. She also acted for several police associations in matters involving Police Services Act, criminal investigations, and SIU. In 2012, Pamela transitioned to the position of general counsel for the York Regional Police Association, specializing in police labor law, advocating for the membership before the Board of Arbitration, Human Rights Tribunal, and professional disciplinary bodies. Several associations in Ontario have benefited from Pamela's Police Services Act experience, along with her ability to navigate the increasing issues within Ontario's oversight bodies. Currently, Pamela operates Machado Law Professional Corporation as a sole practitioner, offering professional policing services to police associations, uniform, and civilian members of the policing profession. Practice areas include criminal law, police labor and disciplinary law, human rights law, employment law, WSIB, and estate drafting. Whether you're driving your Jaguar XC, shredding your Stratocaster, or drafting an application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune. Alex, Pamela, thank you both for being here today. Thanks, Marco, for uh, for having us. Thanks so much for having us, Marco. So I'd like to first start by letting our listeners know that, um, as you could tell by the biographies of both our guests today, they are not currently actively practicing in criminal law. And the theme of this episode will be... Um, we'll get into some discussions about how they transitioned or used criminal law as a springboard to transition to other areas of law. But before we get there, let's start with uh, Pamela. How did you start in criminal law? So I got my start rather than going through the uh, cattle call that we do in law school where we all interview in the downtown big firms. I called a local firm where I grew up in Cambridge and summered with them, and that gave me an in to article with them, and pretty much right out of the gate, uh, I was doing attempt murder cases, manslaughter cases, while my uh, while my classmates were, you know, doing memorandums um, at the larger firms. I got a lot of hands-on experience that way, so it really was a, a baptism by fire for me. Uh, which was scary at the time, but I knew I wanted to go the criminal direction at a young age. And so that was really exciting for me and terrifying at the same time. Uh, and that's how I started started in criminal. And that sort of 
transitioned into a little bit of civil litigation as well. And Alex, just so you know, so I met Pamela working uh, on a police services board uh, case. And I could tell right away that she was familiar with criminal law. And she basically coached me on how this is not a, a criminal trial. And so that our relationship developed from there. And it's been a professional one and is relatively recent. But you and I have known each other since for probably over 20 years now. Uh, I think we met, I remember when we met, it was at York University. I think it was in 2001. We took a class, uh, ironically called uh, Ethical Politics. Do you, re- <laughs> you recall that? I, I remember that, um, that I met you, of course, at, at York. I remember that it was around that time. So, yeah, my gosh, it's been over 20 years now. Uh, I don't remember the class. Uh, I don't remember much after that. But I, but I remember more so when we met that first day of law school. Right. I, met, I remember when, um, you know, this is back in 2003. I'm dating myself here. And we, uh, we basically, the first day, don't know anybody. And I thought to myself, Oh, Marco. Oh, I know. I know that guy. I don't say I don't remember if I if I remembered your name, Marco. But I just remember I, I know that guy. And he went to York. And uh, oh, so and he's from Toronto, I'm assuming. And he's now here at the University of Ottawa. That's cool. Okay, so I know somebody here. And uh, that's how like, you know law school started. And then we developed um, a friendship, obviously throughout law school. But really, what was interesting was you found yourself in criminal law after law school. And I was always kind of planning a trajectory into criminal law. So tell us about how you got into criminal law. Yeah, exactly. And I never, I never saw myself as a, as a criminal lawyer. I I knew um, basically since I was a teenager that I wanted to become a lawyer. I just thought of myself more as a, I don't know, as a solicitor. I thought of myself as doing real estate or, or corporate commercial, or somehow I thought, you know, intellectual property, even though I didn't even have a science background. Um, so uh, the the way that I got into criminal law was, yeah, I was gonna so I was gonna um, article with a sole practitioner in Mississauga, and um, that fell through. So I had a family friend uh, who actually he was playing in the in the NHL, uh, and his uh, you want agent, to name drop or, or not? No, you don't have to name drop. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> his uh, his agent um, uh, was a lawyer. So uh, basically, a couple calls were made, and I and I had an interview uh, for for articling, and uh, the lawyer, the, the my uh, my uh, well, his, became my article principal, stumped me on that very first question. The very first question was, "Who was your high school principal?" I didn't know who my high school principal was. I I, I remembered who the vice principal was because he was more of the disciplinary, and the principal for me was more of a figurehead. I had no idea. He absolutely stopped me. I thought at that moment, okay, I'm out of here. I've, I've, I've lost. I'm not going to get this job. What am I doing here? Um, but nevertheless, you know, continue on with the, uh, with the interview and uh, learned that he, um, that, uh, he had been practicing uh, for, at that time, practicing about 40 years. A lot of it had been with the teaching profession uh, along those lines. And then he did all the criminal trials for teachers across the province. So I had no idea that uh, that he was in criminal law, also doing some uh, work in terms of regulatory before the College of Teachers, and uh, that's how that's how I got into criminal law. And uh, in terms of uh, your interest, did it develop as a result of that experience, or did you decide at an early stage that it wasn't for you? Oh no, no. Well, I I basically practiced criminal law for about ten years, and I and I loved it. I loved it. I loved going to court. 
I loved uh, in terms of being there and in the heat of the battle. Like, a lot of my cases were throughout the years a little bit more high profile uh, with the uh, you know teacher charges, teacher cases where it's the historical sexual assault mostly, and uh, and across the province. So we're not talking here Toronto. We're talking Peterborough. We're talking uh, uh, Napanee. We're talking uh, Ottawa and uh, the, the Pembroke. <laughs> I remember in the Ottawa area. So uh, yeah, that was that was amazing to have that experience. Pamela, how about your interest? Uh, how did that develop in criminal law? So I came at it from a similar start in the sense of um, knowing at a young age that I wanted to do criminal, but I'd say it was probably encouraged by the European tough love scenario. Uh, I come from a first generation family. We're Portuguese, uh, two daughters one of whom my dad would have loved to be a son. Um, God love him. So I I think we're okay now, but it took him a couple years to get there. Um, At the time, I was about 11. And I remember, you know, the the age-old question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a lawyer. And that was just unheard of. Uh, No one had gone to college. No one had gone to university. It just wasn't, you know, what we were doing at that time. We were just working to raise our families and give them what they needed. And my dad looked at me and he kind of laughed and that turned into a a really interesting laugh. Uh, And I remember him saying, we don't, we don't raise lawyers. Uh, And that (laughs) gave me the push to say, oh yeah, let's see how far we can go with that. So he'll say to this day that that was all planned and that was his, that was his intention. He was trying Um, to motivate you. He was trying to motivate you. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, at the time, I took that to say, all right, you know, game on. And I wanted to really find that female voice uh, so that I could help not just the females that are within my own culture, but the the males too. Like couples were coming over from Portugal. A lot of them were finding themselves in factory work. Uh, They were finding themselves in WSIB scenarios where you know, some hack in town is the only person that's representing them and taking their money. And so over the years, I started to develop an understanding for how important it would be for me to advocate for people within my own culture. And that transitioned into the world of law, uh, where we started off doing, you know, DUIs, uh, simple assaults, things like that. Portuguese people love their wine. Uh, There's no (laughs) understatement there, but that's a European theme too. So... Uh, I had a similar experience where my firm at the time said, oh, you know, we don't need anybody. And I said, well, can I come in for the interview experience anyways? And that's a lesson to us all to not take no for an answer. Because I went in for that interview and ended up getting a summer position where I made very little money, but I got amazing experience. And then that led to my articles and that led to the experience that I spoke of earlier. So that's what got me started. Um, I have a bit of a hybrid approach now, so I am still involved in, in criminal law. Uh, the difference is that now I specialize for police specifically because when I was doing members of the public, I would more often than not end up having represented the police officer that put the uh, you know Joe Public in the position they were in with the charges. So I do still practice criminal, but the majority of my practice now is around the Police Services Act for police and then any resulting charges that might come from there. So I'm lucky that I still kind of get to be in that world. 
Um, but through meeting Marco, he now uh, also got a bit of a, a refresher on how deficient the law can be from the regulatory bodies uh, as compared to kind of the rigid structure, and I say that in a positive way, of the criminal courts, where you have rules and people actually follow them. Uh, so I like that I get the best of both worlds now. Well, it's, it's the regulatory uh, experience felt like a, a bare knuckle brawl versus uh, the boxing match of the criminal trial. And uh, luckily, I had Pamela in my corner <laughs> on that one. But uh, it was an experience that I'm, you know, I, I don't do too much of it. But now I'm, I'm learning as we go along that uh, with a little bit of experience, it's probably going to get a lot more fun to do. Um Pamela, you said something interesting. Well, first thing you said that was interesting was the Portuguese wine. I think it's really <laughs> underrated. I mean, anybody who's gone to Portugal and has seen how they do the wine process in the Dor Valley is it's just incredible. And it's, um, you know, a lot of it is still done uh, by hand, by foot, because of the, the geography of the valley. And the wine really does taste exceptional from there. But aside from that, I want to know a little bit about your first experience in court. Do you recall that? How was that? What did you, what was going through your mind at that time? So I'll start by letting you know that my dad still makes his wine in the basement of his house. Uh, still, still steps on it at 72 years old. Awesome. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie and say that I love it. Um, but anybody that knows him, you know, Hey John, John, can I have some wine? Do you have any wine, buddy? So uh, so it's probably good that I, I transitioned out of that area of law. Uh, but the first memory that stands out for me is attending court. I would have been 26, I think, at the time, so I was pretty young. And I sent in, I was sent in to speak to a list of about 10 matters. So not, you know, unheard of, but at such a young age, that's a little overwhelming for me at the time. But it's a speak-to list. We're doing adjournments, not a big deal. I'm an articling student at the time. And I think my principal did this on purpose and, and good on him because it worked that he sent me in with some incomplete instructions to say the least. Um, designations were not filed, um, even though he told me that they, that they were. And again, like I said, I think he was teaching me a lesson. The JP who was sitting in that court was known for not liking agents speaking before him. He, without appropriate designations filed, uh, it's an understatement to say that I had my ass handed to me that morning by that JP. <laughs> he will perhaps never remember my name, but I will always remember his. Uh, I held my own, I'm happy to say. My face might have changed a couple different shades of red. And the minute I left that courtroom, the floodgates just opened. And, you know, that was a, that was a memory that I had. But it's also one that I take with me clearly to this day. 14 years later, where I will never send in an agent without proper instructions. Um, not my method of teaching, although it worked. Um, that's something that still stays with me. And not only that, but the decorum that I had to have, despite the fact that I was being completely reamed out, for, appropriately so, for not having the, the proper instructions. So that's something that I definitely remember as standing out. Um, do you, for cathartic purposes, do you want to name the JP? We'll beep you know, it up. We'll beep it up. Um, <laughs> I want to say that that 
retired and enjoying his life peacefully. Um, but if I should come come across him, uh, I don't uh, necessarily want to be uh, on his radar. So I'm going to pass on that one. Okay, thank you. Alex, uh, do you have any early memories or first memories of going to court? Oh, man. My, my first experience in a courthouse was in Kitchener on my first day of articling. And somehow, I, like I said earlier, I, I got the job. And, and I asked bit of my articling principal, Bill Markle, or William Ward Markle QC, Queen's Council, which they don't give out that designation anymore. Um, but I, I asked, I, he asked me when I wanted to start. And I said, oh, well, maybe the third week of July. And he said, yeah, no problem. Well, actually, I think I'm going to be in a, in, a, in a case, in a trial at that moment. So why don't you just come to the courthouse in Kitchener and, uh, and meet us there? Um, I don't even know who us was, but it was him and, uh, and the other lawyer that was on the file. And so I said, okay, great. Um, I'll be there. And, and what I didn't know was that that was – it was a Monday – the trial had gone on in terms of the evidence the week before. The Crown had closed its case, I believe, on Friday. So now it's the it's the defense's turn in terms of are we gonna are they gonna call a, a defense or not? And so I was even thrown into the room when we were having discussion with the uh, with the client, and I'm not gonna of course discuss what what happened in that room. Uh, but but nevertheless, the the decision was made. Um, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna call a a defense. So therefore, uh, the crown goes first in their final submissions, or and and the crown uh, at that point. Um, actually, one other one small thing. I remember this is in the old um, Kitchener courthouse, and like I said, third week of July. Um, it was I don't know a scorcher. I don't know maybe it was like like the the type of weather they're experiencing in the UK now right now. But um, I remember the. Uh, the judge um, allowing the the crown of the defense to take off the ropes to not have to be roped because this is superior court, and so I, I thought to myself that's kind of strange. Okay, and uh, nevertheless, um, the uh, the crown during his final submissions made a comment about how the complainants in this case because this was a historical sexual assault case. I believe there were about four or five complainants, and how they had. Um, withstood cross-examination from, quote, one of the best lawyers in the province of Ontario, end quote. And I thought to myself, holy, holy crap, what, what am I doing here? Like, I'm, I'm going to learn from one of the best lawyers in Ontario. I've, I had no idea who this guy was uh, a, few, uh, a few months ago or so before I got the job. So that was, uh, that, that, I'll never forget that, that first day uh, being in the uh, criminal courthouse in a criminal trial. Well, that... Kitchener, old Kitchener courthouse. Now Kitchener has a very beautiful modern. Well, courthouse. it's beautiful now. The, the the courthouse now is. Well, we're talking about how it was. This is uh, like I said, two thousand and six, I believe. Yeah, that old Kitchener courthouse was was. Um, it was very steamy, I should say, <laughs> if you go there in the summer. Um, but the interesting thing that you mentioned here is. There is a, a culture among the criminal defense bar, and part of the reason why you know we get to the ultimate question, which at the end of every podcast I ask of the lawyer that you wish you have seen or or or, or you have had the privilege of seeing. But the reason why we ask that is because 
other than the names that we know from the media and the big name lawyers, there's a significant amount of high quality uh, lawyers in the bar that only us as lawyers can appreciate or know who they are. And when you get the experience of working for one of these people or observing these people or you know, learning from them in some way, you want to tell and share that to younger members of the bar to know it's not just the names that we, we know from the media, from TV. And, uh, and that seems to be your experience with, uh, with Bill Markle. It was. It, it, it absolutely was. And I'll, I'll go into it later. But um, that, that, it was amazing. Like I said, and not, had not, um, they, there was no website when I went in for the, uh, for the article interview. Um, I looked up the, the name on, uh, on QuickLaw and didn't really see many reported decisions. And so I, I really didn't know much. Um, but then, of course, over the years of getting to know uh, Bill and, and him, like also throwing out names of, of other lawyers from the past and whatnot. I just, yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's, it's incredible experiences. It's still an incredible experience. I still, to this day, I, I met up with Bill uh, just a couple of weeks ago and had a coffee. So I still have the, the relationship with him. Pamela, do you have a embarrassing moment that you want to share with us over the course of your career? <laughs> Does it involve the, the heat of the Kitchener courthouse? Where he he immediately attacked back because he was defensive, 
and tried to justify, well, I'm out of town and I've got a full list today and I need to go back. And the judge let him on this rant uh, and then basically continued to put him in his place again. So I was super embarrassed on his behalf. Uh, and he sat down in the back and had to wait till the end of the list, which isn't my favorite thing to do. Like nobody wants to do that. But that's the decorum that we have within the criminal courts, right? That's just the way it is. And that's the way it's always going to be. But I don't uh, like, so I don't, I don't like, uh, I don't like the bad rap that, you know, Toronto Council get <laughs> everywhere we go. Soon as we leave, you know, I can't tell you, I cannot tell you how many My Cousin Vinny references I get if the moment I leave, and I'm not talking about I'm going far away, if, if the moment I leave Toronto, uh, I get these, these, these jokes that are, that I'm, I'm some city dweller that's coming out here to advocate or run a case. I'm just doing my job. It's not my fault the client got arrested out there. Um, but we do get a bad rap. Uh, and it's probably because of those types of experience that then you, you know, the judiciary or maybe other uh, local council, uh, you know, applies that behavior to all of us. But um, I find that the nicest and the best way to be efficient in those court jurisdictions is to make uh, friends with the senior council that are there. And then when you make friends with them, the senior council I've had stand up and be like, I see Mr. Shars here. I know he has to get back to Toronto. Uh, if he could take my spot and just address his matter briefly and leave, that's a nice gesture by a senior lawyer who I've you know become friends with. And it's occurred to me, and let's say Bradford Court is the one that's sticking out to me at this moment. But it's nice because they they recognize that you're going to be polite, you're going to wait your turn, but then they're going to return the favor by saying, hey, I know this guy, he's not, you know, he's not one of the Toronto, he's not a typical Toronto lawyer, so we'll send them back, right? Yeah, but, but most of the time, uh, again, from my experience, was, no, you, you, you sit at the back, you're like, you, you're not from here, we're going to get this thing done the way that we do it in, in our courthouse, and, uh, and that's just the way it works. And come on, Marco, you're going to tell me that you don't, at the end of your list, you don't just throw out a couple, you know, bam, I'm done. And then you sit down. <laughs> I drop the, I don't drop the, the mic at yeah. the podium. And be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, the other story that I was going to share, and I mean, but it's not a, again, I, I don't have many that embarrassed myself and that's not me just trying to hide them. Um, I think maybe I've pushed them out of my, out of my subconscious, but I had a, a female <laughs> colleague come up to me, didn't know me, assumed that I was a, an agent or a clerk and, you know, wanted to spend more time commenting on my shoes than she did on, you know, the work, which is fine. Uh, it was super nice of her. But she began her introduction by basically tapping me on the head and saying, uh, you know, I actually go first because I'm counsel, you know, sweetheart. <laughs> Uh, and I was, I was somewhat used to that from, from the males because they were older, especially locally in a small town. You're, you're dealing with a lot of practitioners who've been doing it for 40 years. Uh, but I wasn't used to it from someone so close to my age, let alone a female. We kind of had each other's backs or so I expected. So I took that opportunity to say nothing and just let her go up and, and call her list. But again, like you said, I knew a lot of the crowns because I made it a point to go to their offices for my pre-trials and know who their families were. And I would see them on the golf course or whatever it happened to be. And so the crown called me right after her, being that I was actually earlier in call. And the look on her face, she was just mortified. Uh, and it was after that that she didn't apologize, but she wanted to tell me how, how lovely my shoes were. 
So from that point forward, I use that as kind of a, a reminder to me to not make assumptions, uh, to, you know, bring your court clerk's coffee, uh, get to know their names and humanize the experience. Because I think a lot of times it is just people's names on paper, um, clients and, you know, the staff that make these courtrooms work the way they do. And that has really benefited me, whether it's a court clerk emailing me after a trial, uh, one that we did on Zoom in, in the pandemic and saying, you know, thank you so much for sending me the list of all the cases and all your witnesses and just overall kind of being a friendly voice to hear. Uh, we do hear a lot of voices on a regular basis and it gets pretty tiring. So I, I say that I share that story as my own experience, but also as kind of a piece of advice for any young lawyers that are are going to be finding their way into the criminal courts. Actually, that that's a, a great piece of advice. And I think, you know, um, the dehumanizing, well, I, I shouldn't use that word, but the in, less personal experience that, that Zoom court has created has um, forgotten that there are people working at the other on the other side of that camera and doing their job. And, and I remember when I first started and we were at the firm Hicks Block Adams, they would make it a point to invite all the court staff to their Christmas party. And and really the Christmas party was more for the court staff rather than the members of the bar, although all, all members of the bar were also invited, the defense bar. Um, but the court staff would come and, and appreciate it as a gesture of thank you for the work that they've done throughout the, the year for them. And, whoa, 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 hang on. Hold, hold on a second. We're not, we're not going to talk about the legendary Hicks Block Adams Christmas parties, Marco, because that's like another podcast on, unto itself. Like, yeah. Let's, let's, let's not getting, go there. I'm not getting into the details of those parties. If you were there, was you it, were there. Wasn't there a waiver? Didn't you have to sign a waiver before you went to those parties? The, la- the last one that I was involved in organizing ended up with fire trucks showing up. So um, luckily... Um, I'm not sure that that ever happened again. But yeah, we're not going to get into those details. But the, the purpose of it was that court staff were, it was, a, it was a recognition of the court staff. In fact, they used to send a bus out to Oshawa to pick up the Oshawa court staff who wanted to come. And they would be bused in. And uh, with no regard for the capacity limits of the office. The, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what ended up uh, leading to fire people uh, showing up. Alex, what about you? Any embarrassing moments? Well, uh, I, I can say probably the first time that I had to do, and this is a preliminary inquiry, and it, it was young people who uh, you would think would be pretty nervous of being there in court, um, but because I'm a young lawyer and this was the first time sort of doing this, Pretty again, like I said, high-profile case outside of outside of Toronto. Um, I uh, you know right after after I was done, luckily, like as soon as the the judge you know the case was adjourned for the day. No, actually, I think it was lunch. I just ran to the washroom and unfortunately, uh, you know, blew my chunks there. Like that was <laughs> it was it was it was bad. It was the first time. It, it was like I said, a lot of it was already like some. It was pretty like high profile there in that community, and I just thought, and I, I don't, I don't, know, I was nervous. It was the first time, it's, it happened, never happened again. Thank goodness. Um, but, H- help uh, me with the visual of which courthouse was it? 
No, that that courthouse will not be and will not be named. Because I honestly, if the, if you say Old City Hall, I I would I'll blow my chunks right right now. <laughs> or no, co- no, no, no. Or, or College Park. No, no, no. Outside of GTA. Outside. Outside. Oh God, that's good. That's funny. Um, so both of you um, have these fond memories of criminal law. It sounds like uh, and good experiences. How did it come? I'll start with Pamela. How did it come to be that you transitioned from criminal law into your current practice area? So I worked in that small firm, like I said, and kind of got the experience I needed for about five or six years. And it was a very family run practice and it was really hard for me to leave. It was local, but an opportunity presented itself for an in-house position at a police association. And this would have been labor law, which was completely outside of my wheelhouse at that time. Um, so I really took a huge risk by, by taking that position. Not only was it an hour and a half away, um, and, you know, again, European roots, still living at home to pay off law school. So I was driving from Cambridge to Newmarket every day for, for a year until I moved. Um, I took that position and I learned the labor and employment side of things, which the learning curve was steep at first. But once you get your feet wet there and you, you bargain your first contract, you know, it's kind of... What, what do you do now? So I was really delving into different areas within that position. I was doing grievances. I was doing some oversight body, um, disciplinary tribunal stuff. Then I started doing the SIU work, which goes hand in hand with criminal. So I was pulling on my criminal experience in all of those areas. And it got to the point where, you know, in-house is, is pretty much a punch clock. Like you are working nine to five. Um, that's never really been my style. I, uh, did a lot of factory work so that I could pay for law school. Uh, and that gave me the work ethic that I knew I needed, but I had zero interest in being put on a punch clock. So in 2017, I said, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet here. And I left that uh, job and opened up Machado Law and incorporated basically my entire skill set and had the labor law side of things as well as the criminal regulatory body side of things. And it just kind of took off from there. Uh, I still had the criminal in the background, that hybrid approach for any police officers that were charged after their disciplinary hearings uh, or you know, in that process. But uh, that's what transitioned me into the police world exclusively. And I had the benefit of that uh, in-house position giving me the connections that I needed to meet all of those people. Uh, and there weren't really a lot of lawyers that were doing both under one roof. So it is just me. I'm a very small uh, practice. But that being said, you can kind of get both areas when you when you come knocking on my door. So it's been overwhelming. But that's the reason why I transitioned away from uh, the real advocacy side of, the, of criminal trial work and focused on the administrative uh, regulatory side of things because as you now know marco it needs a lot of work uh and i still have a passion for that for that uh, area so that's where i've decided to focus my energy and i get to be my own boss which isn't always great um you know she can be tough but at least it's my stuff and the control freak side of me gets to uh, see everything that leaves my office on my watch so that's the part that i like and it lets me raise uh, raise my family and kind of have some balance as well. Alex, what about you? So basically, as I said earlier, for the first 10 years, I was doing 
criminal work. Um, for the first about seven or eight years, I was in a uh, in a partnership, changed names a few times, um, and uh, nevertheless, uh, added, I think it was back in 2015 um, that the the partnership dissolved. One of the lawyers uh, left. She went back to, uh, or not back, but she went to the U.S., and um, well, I mentioned already, Bill Markle, he basically semi-retired. So I was out on my own. I, I did, you know, sole practitioner for about a year and a half. And it was good in terms, again, as Pamela said, being your own boss and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I hated the, the billing. I hated, um, I hated the, you know, going out. Not that I hated it, but it was... In a way, yes, in terms of hustling for the, for the clients and everything and getting, the, getting that clientele. And so I decided, okay, well, I'm going to look for something in-house. I, I even looked, um, I had a couple of discussions with Crowns and um, was looking into that. And to, at that time, you know, I'm talking about back in 2017 before now. Nowadays, I'm hearing that it's a, a new thing in terms of going over the Crowns office. Um, but uh, back then, this was only about five years ago, it wasn't so much, uh, you know, it wasn't like it was happening all the time. Uh, nevertheless, I... Um, I started looking, and a job popped up at the uh, at the TDSB in terms of um, in house like legal counsel. And uh, quite honestly, I think uh, one of the things that got me that job was the fact that I'm the editor of the Annotated uh, Education Act, so that that helped. And in terms of um, the fact that I was a litigator, because they they were looking for litigators for a lot of work that was coming in in house in terms of. Uh, uh, human rights uh, cases and and other types of litigation, so uh, so I made the move. I started at the beginning of 2018. I've been with the board for now four and a half years. It's been great. I enjoy um, the work and I and I get to use the the my criminal law for a lot. I still have a lot of involvement, uh, even though I don't practice criminal law per se. I um, I still have a lot of contact with, with the Toronto Police, some other police forces as well. But uh, but the main one, of course, being the Toronto Police Services (TPS). Um, when there's issues with respect to production orders and uh, the the police school board protocol, or uh, you know, or or school investigations, um, the big one being uh, you know the David Mary shooting, uh, David and Mary Thompson shooting, uh, back in I believe it was February of uh, of this year. So there's still a lot of involvement uh, with the with the TPS and uh, and a lot of other uh, work that um, that I'm able to. Uh, uh, use my uh, criminal law background and uh, and sort of um, use it now in my my new role as uh, as counsel with the uh, with the board. So both of you have um, hopefully provided some hope to those who want to leave criminal defense, but not necessarily jump to the crown's office. There are opportunities out there with a little bit of ingenuity, a little bit of interest. It sounds like you can expand your horizons. And, um, you know, it's not all just the defense or crown. And I think what we were trying to gain out of this episode of The Law Garage is to provide two examples of other opportunities. And I'm sure there are many more. And I'm sure that there are many other uh, lawyers out there who can tell us how their starting criminal defense has led them to down other career paths. Um, the concern that, that we're having in this today, and I'm speaking in the summer of 2022, is... There's been a huge influx of government resources into the crown, uh, perhaps to get rid of the backlog of cases uh, caused by the pandemic. 
and it's very very enticing i would think for people who want maybe job security or having difficulty uh, in the practice of criminal defense to apply and go to the crown's office but what's happening with the defense bar is that they're this is it's creating a brain drain and i don't think that that brain drain in the defense bar exists in the same way when somebody decides to take a position like alex has or take a position or, or do work like pamela has because for instance i tapped into pamela as a resource to assist me in the case that we were doing together i look at her as somebody who's assisting in the defense bar alex is not uh switching to a government agency that is looking to prosecute individuals rather he has individuals uh, that work for the board that he's responsible for protecting their interests and their rights and so while you might not be practicing in criminal defense you're using those skills if i understood both of you correctly to still defend individuals against the powers of the state am i right about that pamela yeah so i can start we have a different breed um you know we call them prosecutors in the administrative world as opposed to crowns and i get to experience relationships with both the crowns from the criminal courts are a little bit more in tune with the relationships of dealing with defense and how positively they can use that to narrow the issues, which just benefits the entire process. Uh, when you can talk like real people and you treat your clients like real people, then you don't spend days upon days upon days wasting uh, resources in court. My frustration on the regulatory side is that prosecutors are much different. They don't have this um, criminal code available to them. They, we have the Police Services Act, but it's applied so liberally and it's applied in a way that it really depends on who your adjudicator is, that we waste so much time on personality conflicts and not being able to apply the law universally because it really depends on who we're talking about as an accused or as a respondent officer that everything gets bogged down. So I always pull on my criminal law experience to it, like inject that into my relationships with these prosecutors. And they're constantly saying to me, well, this is a criminal court. Well, this is a criminal court because it doesn't benefit their uh, strategy to rely on those rules because they do have a consistent approach. And it does say if you commit misconduct A, you will get penalty B. You know, we don't get that in, in the police act world. We get it really factors in who Officer C is and who they know. Uh, and that's a really frustrating part. So I'm just going to keep grinding and I'm going to keep uh, trying to implement what I've learned on the criminal side to maintain that rigidity on the regulatory side until these prosecutors just get it. Uh, and so that's been my experience on pulling from one process to the other. And now, Margo, you got a taste of it too, that even the adjudicators, they tend to follow what the prosecutor and what the defense is doing. They take our word for it, if you will. Um, they're learning as they go. So they're a different type of adjudicator as well. But if we're doing it poorly, then they're gonna do it poorly and we're gonna end up with bad law. So. Um, if there's any piece of advice that you're not looking to necessarily go into a traditional crown role, you know, try your luck in the prosecutor role of the police act world, uh, work with the defense counsel that already work in there that are seasoned. I have over the years and I've taken from the benefit of their experience 
to bring what I can to my relationships with prosecutors. And I welcome those people to go into those roles because it just makes my, my job easier in, uh, in not having that clash of the two different worlds uh, colliding where perhaps they're taking a traditional approach and hierarchy uh, that doesn't really have any structure to it. It's interesting because usually they say bad facts make bad law, criminal law. But as you just articulated, sometimes uh, in the regulatory context, bad advocacy can make bad law. And so, and we, we know that um, uh, from our experience, shared experience. Alex, do you have anything to comment on that? Uh, yeah, no, well, you mentioned earlier in terms of my clients. My clients are mainly um, school uh, principals, vice principals, um, superintendents. And so one of the things that, that we get a lot, as I mentioned earlier, was the production orders and, you know, the police coming to the um, to the school principal and saying, we need this information. Uh, we need um, certain documents or whatever you have in your in your possession. And so and the school board is subject to MFIPA, the Municipal Freedom of Information Protection of Privacy Act. And so and there is an exception there in terms of providing to the uh, to the police, but they're but again, this is this is about this is an issue with respect to privacy law, and and what I always tell my clients um, is the fact that you know if if the police were to act, the police come to you and they ask you for this information, you hand it over. When the when if there's something were to happen uh, later on, if there's uh, you know an issue that comes out, or I think there was a story in the uh, Toronto Star a few years ago about pizza pizza, um, you know, divulging personal information. Um, without judicial authorization, and I always just basically tell my clients along the lines of, if um, if you're if, if you do this and there is an issue later on, um, and and you haven't done the proper legal analysis or gotten uh, my advice or advice from one of my colleagues in the legal services department, uh, the police are just going to put up their hands and say, you know, all we did was ask. You guys gave you gave it to me, and all, uh, you know you had you had a, a lawyer, you have legal counsel there at the school board. You could have asked uh, in terms of their input uh, or advice before you provided this information to me. So I'm not saying that we don't do that. There are uh, cases, and there is, like I said, an exception under the under MFIPA. Um, nevertheless, uh, I just I always advise my clients. You know, you have to do. Well, let's let's go through this. Let's go through the facts. Let's go through and do a proper legal analysis. And and you know, many times I'm not going to say all the time because it's not just like okay, no, forget it. They, you always have to go and get a production order. But I always, but I just advise the clients. You know, this is something that we 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 have to consider fully, and you know, uh, pr- this is one where a uh, a judicial authorization by way of production order is would be my advice in terms of uh, before handing this documentation to to the police. But after today, you're going to tell them to just hand everything over, right? Because the, I'm thinking the about counsel it. For, the counsel for the police are so polite and welcoming in their discussions, right? So well, I'm just be- I'm just glad that I don't have any 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 uh, interactions with you, Pamela. Like, <laughs> if you move over to, to the TPS, then then it's an issue. <laughs> I think you're safe. You're safe. I'm not going that far. Pamela, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career, or alternatively? What lawyer do you wish that you had the opportunity to observe? So, I mean, I'll be cliche and say that I would have loved to uh, to, to see some Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not just in today's 
you know, uh, abortion context, but just to see her in general, I would have loved to do that. But I think that's, uh, you know, probably something you'll hear across the board from a lot of people. Um, I do a lot of work in Ottawa and, uh, while I'm there, you know, I, I love me some good cross-examination like anyone. And uh, I think when you see someone do an effective cross, that's when you can really get to see the kind of, not just person they are, but the kind of advocate that they are. And Mike Ellison is someone that sticks out to me. He's been practicing criminal law uh, for decades. And so I definitely look up to him in that regard. And I had the benefit of, of seeing him several times uh, in, in his cross. And he just has this ability to pick up on the comments that are made by the witness and transform them into these bullets that he fires out and he doesn't do it aggressively. Um, you know, he's not someone that, that badgers or harasses. I think I had this idea when I became a criminal lawyer that you were supposed to be a certain level of aggressive, especially if you're female, where you had to rip somebody apart in order to, to get what you needed. You really had to go after their credibility. Mike has this ability to, to do that without, like, I, I think they may even, you know, ask him out for, for coffee after, is he does it assertively, but in a way that's so unassuming, you don't even really know what's happening as the person sitting in the witness box. And so I've had the ability to see him in action in that way. And, uh, and that's just, you know, he's repeatedly been recognized by his peers uh, as one of the best lawyers in Canada for criminal law and beyond. And I think that speaks volumes too, is, you know, when your peers can recognize how good you are, that's great. Like we are a, we are a very tight knit community, even though we might not know each other personally, we may not hang out, but that's one thing when your clients can say that you're good, that's expected. You want your lawyer to be good. But when the people that you're questioning can kind of come up to you after and say, good job there. You know, I didn't really know. I didn't really know how to handle you there. I think that speaks volumes of, uh, of your level of skill. And that's, that's the, the place that I put him. So I would definitely, uh, definitely say if you have an opportunity to see him, I'm not sure how many years he has left in him, uh, but I think he's tried over 2000 criminal cases. So, uh, and I believe he's also a co-author on a cross-examination uh, textbook as well. Uh, it's called Cross-Examination, the Art of the Advocate. And I'm not getting any kickbacks on that. It's just a really, really good book. So I recommend that to any counsel, new, young, uh, old, experienced. It's a, it's a good read for sure. So that would be my answer to that one, Marco. Michael Edelson. Alex, same question. Well, I was thinking about this in terms of who I would have liked to have seen in his prime. And one of the ones um, that I thought of was, was Johnny Cochran. And yeah, we've, we've all seen, you know, the OJ Simpson trial. We've seen, uh, you know, all the actors that portrayed uh, uh, Johnny Cochran, but I, I was thinking more in terms of, you know, his, his, his earlier career and uh, just the fact that what I had, what I, I have read about him in terms of uh, the, the type of work that he did and the civil rights stuff that he did, um, so that's definitely someone who I would have liked to have seen, um, you know, uh, not not in terms of that high profile case with with OJ, but uh, in terms of just you know handling it or, or defending, advocating on behalf of of other clients in the past. Um, 
in terms of the one who I felt privileged to have seen, I basically have to echo everything that um, the Pamela just said, but with regards to to my articling principle that I said, and and then became my my boss, and then uh, then eventually became my my law partner, Bill Markle. Uh, just everything that I saw him, he he really was, and still is, but he doesn't do much. He doesn't do. I think he still does some work there. Um, especially he's got the whole, you know, 50 years now, uh, in, in the bar, so it doesn't have to pay those fees, but nevertheless, he, um, uh, just, he was, or still is, uh, but definitely at that time, a, uh, a true gentleman barrister or what I've, what I had always sort of imagined in my mind. And just the fact that, you know, he took so much pride when he would put on those robes, um, in superior court. And, and everything that he did in terms of advocating on behalf of, of his clients and, uh, and how he was just, um, you know, just, just the work that I would see in the background uh, when, I would, when I was in the office there and when I would see him sort of preparing uh, is, is something that I've, that I've used myself, that I've, that I've tried, to, uh, um, tried to repeat, tried to um, nowhere near where he is. Uh, but uh, I still feel uh, as though I've I learned so much from him, and uh, and like I said at, at the beginning of this podcast, um, for for somebody such as the Crown to just throw out the fact that you know he, he was one of the best lawyers in, in Ontario, and and that's what I've heard again other stories that I've heard from him. He's he's very humble, and and he won't say it himself, but uh, you know stories that I've heard from others uh, and in all the work that he used to do. Uh, because he, was, he wasn't just a pure criminal lawyer. He did a, um, other litigation uh, before that and a lot of work for teachers uh, across the board. Well, I think was something that was called uh, the Board of Referees, and apparently he never lost uh, a single case uh, out of, I don't know, hundreds that he did back then. Uh, but nevertheless, I um, just uh, admired so much when I would uh, go to court with him and, and just to see the way that he uh, – uh, the way that he uh, – um, composed themselves in the courtroom uh, with uh, with the judge, uh, with the uh, with the other with the, the crown, and um, and everyone else in the courtroom. Uh, the decorum that he uh, that he showed uh, was in, was in my estimates incredible. So I I've always felt so privileged to the fact that I was able to uh, to to practice law with him for for quite a few years. Pamela and Alex. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there is something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? Pamela? Uh, yeah, actually, I want to, well, first of all, thanks for having me again. It was, uh, it's, it's quite a change to do something like this from what I'm used to, and and uh, so I've enjoyed that and getting to know both you and Alex as well. But I want to take this opportunity to, uh, you know, recognize the members of the policing community. Uh, they keep our community safe, uh, which is obvious. And I think that my two kids uh, are safer as a result of the risks that they take every day. Uh, they're not perfect. I wouldn't say that. And I wouldn't have a job if they were. But uh, for that uh, commitment that they make and the integrity that they bring, I am um, grateful, and so I do want to provide a special shout out to them. Alex, Marco, you know we, we've known each other for, for like I said, we said earlier, twenty years. Thank you so much for 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 having me as well today, and uh, and for um, you know hearing uh, Pamela's story. Um, 
I, I as I, as I've said it before, uh, I'm the editor of uh, the Annotated Ontario Education Act. Um, actually, I just learned earlier this morning that uh, it's the 25th anniversary uh, that it was first published back in 1997. I've been the editor for the past 10 years, and uh, now uh, this year, 2022, is uh, is 25 years, which is incredible. So uh, I wanted to mention that just because. Um, you know, many, many criminal lawyers take on student discipline cases um, in the boards throughout the province. Again, that's a, uh, a student that's been uh, suspended or expelled. And, and um, you know, the, uh, the Education Act, well, my Annotated Education Act, uh, is a helpful tool for them um, when they're sort of, you know, getting into an area that they're not familiar with. And, and again, they, uh, a criminal lawyer, uh, in my estimation, can absolutely take on a, a student discipline case and it's also not uh, not uh, like the rigid rules that there are in criminal law, um, uh, but they uh, you know you go in before the uh, the board of trustees. Usually, it's a panel of three, um, and uh, and you advocate on behalf of your client. So, uh, and this time in this case, it would be a young person. So, uh, and, but you need to know the Education Act. You need to know uh, what it means in terms of a uh, uh, when a student has been uh, suspended or expelled from school and. Uh, there are um, certain, uh, you know, there there are certain uh, rules, and there's a procedure that that's uh, that's there at the school board, and uh, you need to know uh, what what it is. So the the Education Act uh, may help you. I would hope it doesn't. But but my I guess my 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 main point here is that uh, you know there is work outside of criminal law, and that's that's part of this podcast today, and and so that in terms of taking on student discipline cases is something that. Uh, that many criminal lawyers should uh, should consider uh, doing that, and, and I know a few lawyers that that uh, that have done that, and and they've done well. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Law Garage. Our production crew includes. Executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production.